It's Monday, June 21, 2021. This is LA Podcast. I'm Matt Tinoco in proverbial studio with Alyssa Walker, Scott Frazier. How are you all doing today? Happy summer. Happy Good solstice. Happy summer. June. That was a great intro, by the way. June, Juneteenth to... observed. Yeah, but oh. it's not. But on Friday, it was observed on Friday. We were talking about this. Oh, right. It's well, very strange, Next right? year, it's going to be a Monday observed, that, I think, for the federal holiday. But anyway, why it's more than... It until Monday this year? As LA Times said, it's more than a holiday. It's love fam. Oh, man. Who, I'm who good. Who were the I advertisers in that section? Who were the, what was the ad buy on that? That's a good question. It was about half. Ad. I don't want to sh- like. I don't want to shit on this insert that they did because they did have their uh, black journalists put together a Juneteenth insert. But that, why did they say that? On I don't know. It was so patronizing. I hated that. Hated that decision. It's another one where it's just like, how many people said yes? Oops, let's uh, meet that thing. Uh, also, Father's Day. Anyway, Father's Day observed. I've Everything done, observed. I've done my roundup of the holidays for this <laughs> week. I'm I'm clocking out. Solstice is the most important and relevant topic, I believe. Solstice with the mostest. As we were got close to being burnt to a crisp, but we didn't. We avoided it. <laughs> well, now it's now it's summer, so that's the thing. That was a spring wave, oh, not that's a true. not a not a summer wave. So now it's now it's we can turn the thermostat all the way up. I mm-hmm. think they said that Palm Springs might have hit an all time high. They weren't sure if it was 122 or 124, and that would be a spring record. Yeah. So it's going to be a long summer. It's a long summer. <laughs> well, we'll just keep going here. We've got a bunch of really, you know, just continuing with what we've been chatting about, news to get to, including some really, I guess, you know, I wrote I wrote in my script here, solid gold items. <laughs> <laughs> Before that, I was hoping maybe maybe we can get... I guess I'll start with my, I mean, the whole thing this week is, you know, where we're reopening and like we can do other things, but like my LA story, uh, I don't know. Have either of you ever been to Sherman Oaks Castle Park? No, no, I've never even heard of this. Okay. So Sherman Oaks Castle Park is a municipal, it is built on its website. It's a mini golf course, but also a batting cage and an arcade in the nestled in the 405-101 interchange. It's a city run, it's a recreation and parks thing. Uh, but it's a mini golf course. So if you want to go do mini golf for 650 per round, it's a great place to go doing that. But also, uh, that's what I did last night. And that was quite, it was wholesome, wholesome fun <laughs> to go to a mini golf course. Masks are, I mean, and also in the, so we did, did a round of mini golf, but then also went into the arcade and played a couple of arcade games and no masks anywhere in sight inside the arcade. And uh, I guess that's just fine. I guess that's that's where we are. It's just how it, it's, you know, just we're just going to move forward. And like, what did we learn from this whole thing? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know because inside it was great. So it's like we have no mask, but also we have the hand sanitizer station. So like we're still sanitizing yeah. our hands yes. after we touch all the things. But like that makes no sense. You know, what did we learn? That is such a good question. I feel like I feel like nothing has, I feel like nothing really lastingly has changed. My my LA story is very very similar. It's all around reopening, but it's like uh for the first time in forever, I spent time with people who I did not know. Like I, I just hang hung out with complete strangers, no masks, everybody was vaccinated. Um, and it was it was great. I did it at first last week, um, hanging out with some uh, 
families of, of kids that my partner Sarah used to uh, teach. And then uh, this weekend hanging out with new neighbors in our in our new place and just like meeting people, hanging out, uh, enjoying the lovely hot, humid weather. And, um, and it was just, you know, very, also very wholesome, incredibly wholesome. I also went to my first place indoors unmasked and it was Seven Eleven. So, <laughs> wow. Congratulations. Um, so the person in front of me in line took off his mask and was like, I see you're not wearing a mask, so I guess I don't have to do this. And the guy was like, no. And he was like, oh, thank God. I was like, okay, well, (laughs) this is a milestone, clearly a milestone evening for all of us. I don't think I've even noticed because I go everywhere with my kids and we all just wear masks. And I think most people around us actually do too. I haven't really been, I haven't been to that many places indoors, but we are limited in our... Mm-hmm. destinations but um i'm pleased to know we have a miniature golf course that's owned by the city i guess that just blows my mind <laughs> and my story is a little bit relevant to that because um i when the heat picked up i tried to find a place to take my kids that was not an indoor air conditioned place where they could be in proximity of unmasked people but outside maybe where we could get into a body of water And I was dismayed to learn that the pools were not fully open. Mm. Like if, uh, if you look on the site, uh, I would say, I don't know the number of pools off the top of my head, but not all the, a lot of the pools are just still closed and it says they will open like later this summer. And I actually, if you click on it, if if you've ever tried to go to an LA city pool, it's a very, um, Byzantine process where you are clicking through to PDFs that are posted by the pools Mm. on the Rec and Parks website that give you like a, you know, an updated information sheet of like when you can swim and when you can't swim. I need like an app that's like, can I swim at this pool right now with my child can you imagine? Like, yes, for the next 45 minutes, hurry before we close it for like lap swim or whatever. But like, yeah, if we had something like that, it's very, very difficult to find out where the pools are when they're open. And now they're not open yet. A lot of them are open. I had a great talk with um, some of the people at the various pools and some of them have mechanical issues mm-hmm. that they hadn't had resolved yet. Maintenance issues. These seem like things that they could have gotten done over the last 15 months. When yeah, they, they closed. do. Um, and I wondered if it was related to staffing as well, because there's a lot of things like the, for example, like the dash um, hasn't fully started, fully gone back to its regular schedule. I think like this week it'll start going back up to the observatory. The buses in Griffith Park mm-hmm. aren't aren't running yet. Parkline, um, oh, the park they, line. They never stood a chance. They started it right <sighs> for like a week. I know. So um, it's it just kind of struck me how the splash pads are not open at Grand Park and the Music Center yet, which is it's not really summer until the splash pads are open. Did I say splash parks or splash pads? You said splash pads. Okay, splash. I want a splash park. Will, just an entire park. Hurricane Harbor's splash. open. <laughs> But anyway, please, I want the city to help us open everything fully, extra hours. Parents need places to take their kids. You know, practically, uh, the city of Burbank is happy to offer its multiple aquatic centers with a (laughs) convenient online scheduling system that does have a learning curve, but it's there and live. So it's not. Maybe they can turn the former site of Tinhorn Flats into a (laughs) a Tinhorn Flats Memorial public pool. (laughs) 
I drove by it a couple days ago and just said bye. It was fine. They, that was the day. And we did talk about this before on the show that just the, the pure joy of they finally, they couldn't open on the day that the state reopened. It was like the best. They said, they finally said, we are not letting this business come open back up. And it was on June 15th. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's kind of, I, we can just continue on to an, our, our, I guess, a segment here. But I mean, we're open. June 15th happened. It came, it went. And I guess kind of as we talked about before, things are as they were on June 14th, sort of. But I guess there are little changes. Like there is more, the absence of masks inside is, I guess, just how we go in most places, but not all places. It seems to be like... Is it even most places though? Because like I have not seen that many, I have not seen that many businesses at least. And again, I'm pretty much only at this point going to going to restaurants and and, and places like that. So I don't know if it's different in retail settings, but there's still like the weird sort of fiction of I'm going to like put my mask on at the door just to show you that I have it basically and then take it off for the rest of the night because I don't know. It's I don't it, it feels like and and for the employees of course a lot of them are still required at least for the time being to wear masks. I just I feel like even indoors a lot of places I still do see like Alyssa was saying people fully masked um although maybe that's starting to change. Mm. I I was what I was thinking about this week was the the fact that the heat wave coincided with mm. the opening day. Because if it hadn't, there would it, it was it probably saved lives because there were places for people to go that were inside and air conditioned yeah. that that were not open literally the day before. So I wondered, like, it you know, thank goodness yeah. <laughs> that we that we fully opened. Like all the libraries were open. I think not all of them, but like a, a greater number and like malls and every you know. So we actually had places for people to go. I, and extended I was, hours. Yeah, I was I was I was worried about that, but that was the one I guess saving grace of our. Of our reopening. I I mean, I feel like we have to talk about it because nobody else will. I feel so bad for the people who were in the Minion costumes <laughs> on the hottest day of the year next to Gavin Newsom at Universal City Walk. I just feel bad that they had to be next to Gavin Newsom. That was Can the you most imagine? surreal. I mean, if for, if you hadn't seen it to our to the message to our viewers, just go search for like Gavin Newsom minions as I did <laughs> <laughs> to find this press conference where he he like said the day before that he was going to like announce the reopening of the state at a very special iconic place. And then it was Universal Studios. <laughs> like, I don't even know. Like, OK. And then it was like Optimus Prime uh-huh. and like a Jurassic Park baby velociraptor being held by a ranger <laughs> and then there were minions and then trolls. Yeah. And trolls, of course. Yes. And as we, as we stand here today under the watchful eye of the giant minion <laughs> overlooking the one Oh one. And there were like, like banter between the governor and Optimus prime. He was like, I will bring you up to Sacramento for, to help with the budgetary negotiations. Thanks Optimus prime. <laughs> Seriously, it was like a scripted. <laughs> I don't know if that even qualifies as banter. And this is after he <laughs> held a game show where he gave away money mm-hmm. as part of the lottery. That was, I mean, right, he's having right, a good right, right, week. Right. I mean, he likes doing His hair this. Is really good. He loves doing. He loves this, this more yeah. than governing. It seems. It's like 
the being if if being California governor every day was just like being Monty Hall, he would be great. Yeah, no, he would be, yeah, he, would be he has the hair for it. He's like already like <laughs> set to go as this. Um, he's got his like next phase after governor already, where he just you know is like a a personality. The president. <laughs> that's that's the personality he wants. Um, yeah, I mean, so so reopening, we are. Uh, again, like uh, as we discussed pretty much every week at this point, we're seeing number COVID numbers continue to decline, which is incredible considering considering how low they are already. But positivity rates on the COVID tests continue to go down. Number of cases continues to go down. Uh, and that's statewide. Uh, Los Angeles now has a lower death rate than the northern part of the state for pretty much the first time since last summer. So things continue to trend positively here and businesses are i think in the now i suppose in uh, the the middle stages of being able to hire back substantial portions of the workforce we, we've talked about this a bit but it's like a lot of those uh, industries that were most affected by the closures one of the reasons why they're struggling to find uh find labor not necessarily because of the republican talking point of oh, people are just getting too generous of unemployment benefits. Some of it is because the perception is that those industries are likely to be subjected to another round of closures or mm -hmm. the, the instability was just mm -hmm. so great that they are looking for other things. So um, as the numbers continue to remain low over time, I think we'll see some of that fear of instability start to pass and people will start returning to those jobs, hopefully um, with a much deserved increase in pay and, and uh, benefits. But that I think going into the summer, we have some expectation that things are going to actually uh, be in a very positive place for Los Angeles County, economically speaking. Yeah, just one thing to mention that I think everybody is noticing or that I have been wrote about last week and I've been talking a lot about is like as we go back out into the world, no one can get um, on-demand ride-hailing um, services anymore. Yeah. And this has been like the talk of like every, like trying to make plans or um, trying to, you know, coordinate timing and location of things. This comes up now. I don't know if you have like, have had these conversations with people. It's like, you might not be able to get home from the bar mm. if you go to the bar. Um, and it's, it's, it's such an overlapping thing of what you're talking about. Like people don't want to work these crappy, uh, low paying jobs that where you are not, even though they're adding surge pricing, you are not making that money no. as a driver. Um, even though Uber's CEO denies this, but it's like very clear when you talk to a driver, like what money they've made. And then, you know, the demand is going to increase and there's just not going to be, it's, it's going to probably take months for anything like this to get worked out unless they start paying people a fair wage. I mean, yeah, I don't think it will get worked out. No. And I think it'll just remain <laughs> Especially paying. not in California, yeah. Like I just, I mean, I I never really use Rideshare that often and now it's just not even going to be an option because, well, like yesterday I looked just, just out of curiosity to see how much it would be to go from my house in like, 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 like by the Hollywood Western Metro station to Union Station in a lift, which is a ride that I did once a long time ago in the morning when I didn't want to wait for the red line. Uh, the price was like $30. And then the arrival time, if you scrolled all the way down, because you're going to have to wait 15 or 20 minutes for somebody to pick you up. 
it, if you, come at all. If you yeah. scrolled all the way down, it would the the it has the public transit option there, which was not only cheaper but also had a significantly earlier arrival time. Oh. If I just walked over to the red line station, and waited twelve minutes for the red line to show up, and then yeah. and I mean that's just it's also like a point where it's like you kind of it's like hey okay so for for years everybody's been like. I don't know, thinking about like, well, what the, what effect is rideshare having on transit? Okay. Well now rideshare is not really, it's, it's not even with like the mediocre transit, like uh service that we have in Los Angeles transit is still able to beat the rideshare at this point. So it's like, well, maybe that's an opportunity to, you know, invest in transit and like get more people onto the buses and onto the trains. Uh, but maybe we could like add more service on most lines starting June 25th. It's a, it's about, it's a, <laughs> It's about um, it's about a, a reversal from the the last decade, basically, right. where uh, where Uber and Lyft, the widespread popularity and the um, the extremely cheap prices, leveraged in part by, um, for example, oil interests in in um, the Middle East. Wait, what? Um, <laughs> were were used as reasons to cut transit service. But I agree. I mean, this is kind of like a in the in the words of. Eminem's character B Rabbit from the movie Eight Mile. This is like the back to reality moment. <laughs> I mean, the, we, you you definitely see these prices happening. They are more realistic of what it costs to actually serve people in the the sort of on demand fashion that Lyft and Uber do. And I just want to say this is exactly what Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and all these companies were saying was going to happen. If Prop 22 had failed, that it would become so much more expensive to use a service that nobody would be able to to do it. Uh, Total dystopia. Everybody's losing their freedom to work at sub-minimum wage, etc. And Prop 22 passed. And they got everything they wanted. And now here we are. And it's except the the difference is instead of that extra money going to drivers and providing them with benefits and allowing them the ability to unionize, it's just going into hopefully making these services profitable, which they still obviously are are a long way from achieving. So hopefully it's going back to the oil interests in the Middle East. So that's where I want my profits to go. November, Sovereign wealth funds. November uh twenty twenty, we had a choice between give profits to workers or give profits to uh the owners of those companies and, and we chose wrong. So unfortunately ride the bus this summer or you'll be complicit. Yes. Let's take a second and go over, uh, I don't know. We have a mayor, right? Is he still Do our mayor? <laughs> I don't I, know. I have never seen uh, uh, anything like this week where you usually get the information that he's going out of town. So I think I talked about it last week about how all of a sudden the mayor's press office allerts are sending things either the day of. Or sometimes um, even after. Or sometimes even after they've already started. And on... <laughs> This was uh, just completely comical. You know, I think we had recorded the show and then I got I got home and then I looked at my mayor alert and it was like he had it said like no events. And then it was like he's already gone. He's left the state mm-hmm. today and we'll be back on Thursday. Um, 
And again, like usually you get, of course he's allowed to like go on vacations and do things like that. You know, we don't need to know where he, where he is per se, but like the fact that it was released after he had already left town, I found very interesting. Um, and then we had so much news. So I we went into full on like <laughs> great mouse detective mode <laughs> in, in our group chat, trying to figure out where the mayor trying had to, gone. Yeah. He did have an appearance in DC, but we found it. It was a virtual appearance. So it couldn't have been DC, but I guess that makes him rat again. I yeah, like this. I, I like, like this yeah, analogy. That's a very, that's a very good analogy. <laughs> But then there was so much news while he was gone. All I could picture was, um, you know, that he was like in the mountains of like Montana or something and like getting cell service as he was coming back. Uh (laughs) It was just like, sir, they got solid gold. So so the news this week broke from uh, the, the LA Times broke just basically about, I guess you could call it like the, the office culture of Garcetti world. Uh, and it was namely that his uh, his chief of staff, Ana Guerrero, was more or less making lascivious comments on Facebook about Merrill Staffer, or uh, not Merrill Staffers, but uh, the planning director um, that was appointed by the Mayor, Mayor Garcetti. And there were other just a Public lot of figures. Uh, Jeffrey Prang, the assessor, is in there. The uh, uh, Ron Galperin, yeah. uh, controller, uh, other council staffers, just... Just like nasty stuff that you wouldn't, you you know, I don't know if you're chief of staff for, you know, an elected office. Like if I was in that position, I would, I mean, you shouldn't say this at all, but like definitely not put it in a Facebook group. Like sure, it was a private Facebook group, but the solid gold is the title of the Facebook group. That seems to be like a group of Garcetti World staffers. I That's the impression that I got, but it's just like, I don't know. I mean, as we as as we've heard, as we've learned a lot more about like the culture of that office and the culture of like that Mayor Garcetti and his compatriots have like established, it's like kind of not surprising, but it's also just like, I don't know. It's like, this is the person, like at once when you're talking, like I think one of the things was, was in the reporting that the Times did after the fact was when Garcetti was asked about it. It's like, so the specific comment that the Times highlighted was um, Guerrero said that, she had looked long and hard for someone that might be easy on the eyes. Um, long and hard are in all caps. This is about Vince Bertoni, the now director of city planning. And I mean, to your ears, this would seem to be crossing the like sexual harassment line, right? I mean, there's two things that I think one, one thing came out in the subsequent article where they went and, and got the mayor's comment. But one was like, yes, like, blatant like objectification for borderline sexual harassment. But um, also that like, I think somebody brought it up in the other story that like, did they pick him over someone who was maybe more qualified because, you know, <laughs> the way they looked, I mean, it just introduces all these mm, it's really a- troubling, uh, you know, uh, a, a peeks into the thought processes of, of it, hiring. It is, I, I would say it is sexual harassment it's it's harassing behavior Uh, i mean one of the and it's indicative um to to the broader question it seems as though it is indicative of cultural issues within garcetti's office things that uh, so the more the more that stuff like this comes out we have rick jacobs of course accused of groping, unwanted touching, hugging, kissing, uh, making really lewd comments about both men and women. And Garcetti has said that he was unaware of any of that. The more that stuff like this comes out, the harder it is for Garcetti to credibly say that he was unaware of it 
if anything, um, if, if he continues to make those types of denials as he has uh, done again in the case of his chief of staff, uh, Guerrero here, then it just sort of begs the question, like, should you have known? You know, you're saying that you didn't, but is that an is that an acceptable defense? You're a top administrator for uh, a large city. You're about to go onto the world stage potentially. Is it is it okay for you to just continue to say I don't know about these things without denying that this is the the factual uh, situation for people who work under you? Or to say, and and I said this before about when the Rick Jacobs stuff comes out like almost like defending people instead of saying, wow, that person's bad news. Like I've gotten rid of them. I've taken action and, you know, I'm making sure that this won't happen again. And instead it's like, I know that this person didn't mean it and they're good. They're a good, they're good people. And, you know, famously, everyone apologized. Uh, famously, almost the exact wording that Garcetti used when Michael Moore said that protesters protesting after <laughs> George, George Floyd's death oh. were as much to blame we as the officer who, one, yeah. who killed him. And that was, that was Garcetti's almost exact wording about chief uh, police chief michael moore I, I know he didn't mean it you know we forgot to do a one-year anniversary of the greatest uh, of the press conference of all time um, the- but that, that that is sort of the way that he has approached all of these with um what appears to be a a, a hope that it will kind of blow over or maybe he's just biding time but which should theoretically be uh, a, a limited amount of days that he has to wait for things to blow over before he leaves town. But we don't necessarily know that that's, that that's going to happen. I just want to say too about this, the solid gold Facebook group. What is interesting here, I mean, Guerrero for her part said these were never intended to be shared outside of a small group of friends. Um, the thing, the things like the saying that a staffer for Mike Bonin, I believe, looked like he was pregnant, um, stuff like that, uh, were all just jokes, and that she regretted engaging in that type of humor. It's interesting, and I think probably more than a bit telling that you would have a group like this. Again, the choice of a Facebook group is. Wild. You, if you were ever going to do this, it makes no sense to do it on Facebook. Um, but it, it is interesting that the comments are so. Uh, so many of the comments are directed at people throughout city government, mm-hmm. and appears to just be like a way of um, venting like tremendous disgust with yeah. like the people that you work with on a daily basis. That to me seems like it is reflective of, um, you know, not just being, not just being like, oh, this is just a place for us to discuss or uh, make crude jokes, but that it is actually reflective of a broader dynamic within City Hall. Well, now we know there was a a story by Libby Denkman in LAist um, that talked about the Garza allegations and... um, Kind of, kind of pointed to the same type of culture that's that is being cultivated, and there was a really striking quote from one of the um, attorneys uh, in the cases that was pointing out some of the contradictions in what some of the depositions had um, revealed, and how they had you know completely gone against what staffers had said. But it was just this like 
idea that this is a, a peak inside the Garcetti machine and that there's a real loyalty mm. um, uh, factor at play here and that if you play, if you don't play by the rules, you know, you'll be, um, I guess... <laughs> you'll be open to criticism on the Solid Gold Facebook page. But also there was a really striking part of that, I guess is why we know they will use Facebook where Rick Jacobs said in a, a deposition that he used Signal and then like the next day they asked him if he, if about using Signal. He's like, oh no, I completely misspoke. I might've overestimated we how much never, we never, we don't use Signal. So I guess maybe they just use Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was... An all time. I mean, wow. Talk about talk about a liability um, on the deposition tape. That was the one of the worst so denials. Confused. Oh, different app. This was a, a completely different app. This was Twitter. I was confusing <laughs> it with. Uh. We, yeah, we started using Signal more. No, wait. No, 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 no not that one. No. For the record, I did not. I didn't. I didn't say that. I've never used Signal before. I mean, and this is. Um, it, it raises questions. Of course, it's it's pretty much beyond uh, a doubt in my mind that every single office in in City Hall uh, uses either Signal or similar uh, discrete messaging apps. We know, of course, about the use of Confide um, by former Council Member Mitch Englander in in the pursuit of. Um, misleading federal investigators um, and and there are serious transparency concerns about those types of disappearing messaging apps as well but it's um, obviously Rick Jacobs's uh, denials were just not not even remotely credible I, I kind of wonder too like if we were to assume all of the workplace dynamic stuff is true like what is that like if 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 everything suggested was true Amy Wakeland is a bully. Eric Garcetti is aware of all of this stuff. Rick Jacobs is, um, is is sexually horrible to everybody he comes into contact with, and Chief of Staff Anna Guerrero is um, also. What like what does that tell us about the the mayor's office and just Garcetti as a boss? I had at least one person that uh, is very privy to a lot of these relationships say there's so much more and it's so much worse. Yeah. Um, you kind of wonder like how did the, the, the private <laughs> Facebook group, like somebody right. let like, you in and, on that. And also who is some people are ready to start talking. It seems like, cause these stories like hit like once a day this week, like I said, his phone was blowing up when he was coming back to town. Um, and there's been a lot of people also leaving in recent yeah. days. It, it reminds me of, I remember, I believe it was, I must've been last year, but I remember there was a pretty significant open letter about a culture of really nasty sexual harassment in City Hall that was signed on by a number of people, including several who have since left, not just the mayor's office, but just city government generally. Mm -hmm. And that's like, I don't know, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of names on that letter. And that, I mean, points to exactly what you just said for I mean, there's been discussions of like sexual assault and sexual harassment in California politics, but I think it's kind of bubbled here in the city of LA, but clearly it seems like there's a lot of stuff there and it's, I guess you could get, you know, hello at LA, or what is it? Hello at LAPod.com. Hello at the LAPod.com. Hello at the LAPod.com. Or hit us up in our private Facebook group. <laughs> <laughs> Please do send us, send us your, uh, your city hall horror stories. I, I mean, this... I think the the one thing that I'm looking at as this story progresses is like 
whether or not this is a culture that Garcetti ushered in when he became mayor or if it's one that he like failed to contain or or, or what but or has been brought up in because he was you sure. know mm-hmm. a city council member for yep. 12 years and he was the president of the city council for what, I think 8 years of that almost mm-hmm. I think the machine is the machine <laughs> we should switch over to another machine now still the LA city council at least that's what I'm pegging it to but the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority Everybody wants to do something about it. Everybody has something else to say about it. But the the news peg is that uh, on Friday, the L.A. City Council, the full council, heard the first half of a report from the chief legislative analyst's office of the city of Los Angeles, uh, responding to a motion that basically asked uh, the CLA to, to figure out some things that we could do about LASA. I know it's been talked about before on the podcast for Lots of elected officials, lots of council members in the city of L.A. are really, really making it clear that LASA is, you know, not doing their job. Practically, though, I think it's unclear to a lot of people, likely including those council members, what LASA's job actually is. There's there's lots of, I mean, as the, you know, report yesterday basically said, the presentation yesterday said, or not yesterday, on Friday, excuse me, um, there's lots and lots and lots of different jobs, which make it very difficult for one kind of, you know, stitched together agency to really be good at any of those things. Yeah. Practically, so loss is a, it's what's called a joint powers authority between the city and county of LA. It came into being in the early 1990s, sort of as a way to get the city and county of Los Angeles to, you know, agree on homelessness. And and I remember reading in a, there's a book called Malign, Malign Neglect mm-hmm. uh, that was published in, I think, 1993 or so. That basically, or maybe it was 94 because it was after LASA had come into being. But basically it described LASA as a way for the city and county to basically just put homelessness on another agency and defer responsibility to that other agency without really giving that other agency much actual power to do anything about the, you know, materially true influences that cause mega inflow into uh, homelessness. And so where we are right now is there's a lot of people, like a lot of people on the council uh, are interested in, the, the report included three things. It could, it said, well, we could reform the JPA. We could give LASA some more authority and make some of the things that are unclear about it more clear. The We could turn LASA into something like Metro, where there's more representation. Currently, LASA is only, it, the, the, it's governed by a board of commissioners. There's 10 of them. Five of them are appointed by the mayor of the city of L.A., the other five are appointed individually by each board of supervisor from the county level. If you were to make it something more like Metro, then you would have more representation from other member cities because LASA is going to keep going here because this is such a maze. But like it's part, it's the it's the it's the coordinating agency for what's called the Los Angeles Continuum of Care, which is 84 cities and the unincorporated section of L.A. County. And that's the federal HUD. The, the Housing and Urban Development Department requires jurisdictions to form a continuum of care, basically to receive federal money earmarked for homelessness. LASA does that for 84 cities and the county, or and, and the city of LA too. Uh, and then the cities of Glendale, Long Beach, and Pasadena have their own continuum of care. So when, after the, the meeting on Friday, council members Coretz and Buscaino introduced a motion to essentially withdraw Los Angeles from LASA. 
um, and to form its own continuum of care. But I don't know. I'm just, I keep going here, but I'm kind of no, no, curious. Like, yeah, it, I think it's, it's, it's layers and layers and layers here, but like, yeah, it's, it's like the creating your own public health department during the pandemic, uh, trend that became like very popular. But I think that's a really good way to think about it. It doesn't mean Lhasa goes away. No. It means that we have to create our own mm-hmm. system. The, yeah, the public health secessionism is, is a really good parallel, I think, because uh, especially if you look into what what is the driving motivation for that, we had uh, cities across the county trying to exit from the the county public health authority because under uh, in their view, they were being forced to go along with public health measures that were hurting them economically that they didn't agree with politically. Um, and and they just wanted to be able to exercise more unbridled or less bridled, I guess, uh, authority over the decisions happening locally. But Beverly Hills famously did that. Here, I, I feel like it's the exact same, even though, um, you know, city council members for the city of Los Angeles are much more likely than, say, in Beverly Hills to profess that their uh, that their actions are coming from a place of political progressivism, it is this it is the same motivating force. It's this notion of it's in, honestly incredible to me, but the the notion that Lhasa is somehow exercising undue influence over the city of Los Angeles. Uh, which is anybody who has uh, even a remote familiarity with Lhasa knows that the relationship goes very much the other way. Los Angeles and the county of Los Angeles have tremendous power over Lhasa who uh, have not just multiple roles to fulfill in response to the homelessness crisis here, but also multiple bosses. And it's mm-hmm. hard for them to uh, to walk a very fine line in terms of making all of their different uh, bosses and constituencies happy or any of them, frankly. And that's, that's typically been Lhasa's struggle along with, um, the, the, uh, tremendous budget shortfalls that they have relative to the activities that they are, uh, asked to perform. I mean, so what, what are Lhasa's core, uh, activities that they're supposed to do? The two big core activities, I guess that the, that, that, the CLA articulated was that, okay, so the model of homeless services in the United States is it's a public-private partnership. You have the government providing funds for private agencies to go do the provision of services. LASA also at this point does some provision of the services and everything's in quotes here directly. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's at once a contract administrator. So LASA is the, a significant amount of LASA's Daily activities is basically brokering contracts between LASA, the city, the county, and private service agencies for the provision of services. Uh, And then LASA is also the continuum of care coordinating agency, which includes that contract administration. But in Los Angeles, it means LASA is also derived as part of LASA's budget is largely Measure H, Mm -hmm. uh, which goes to direct provision of services too. And then fulfilling, making sure the federal requirements are checked in all in the various service provision around the county. Um, and then they also operate the, it's called the coordinated entry system, which is the key, which is the coordinated entry system is the like database algorithm, the, the way which when when there's some, when a, a an unhoused person works with like a case manager, 
they are entered into the CES. It is a database that basically evaluates how vulnerable somebody is. And then with the significant effort on the part of case managers and other people who work within the system, matches them proverbially to a housing or shelter option. It is, and losses the custodian of that piece of software, more or less. It's more than a piece of software. There's a significant amount of just individual effort that goes mm-hmm. into this process, but like losses the custodian of that. So for the LA for the LA continuum of care, which is the city and county of Los Angeles plus eighty four other cities. So That's, is there something symbolically beyond? Because uh, we mentioned that like there's not going to be a cessation for like those activities, like that those need to happen going forward anyway. Is there something more than symbolic for city council members who are saying Los Angeles should exit this city county partnership? Uh, what what would what would fundamentally change? So a couple of things, I think. Um, LASA would continue outside of the city and county of Los Angeles. If Los Angeles was to perform, I, in, in at the very end of the, the chief legislative analyst put together, a, there's a 75-page, very detailed, and I think better than some of the other, like the, the county and the LASA report are, they're fine. I think this is the best one, at least with, with regards to interpreting from the mm-hmm. city. If the city was to establish its own continuum of care, it would basically have to form its own LASA at a city level. Now, this entire discussion is about LASA governance. It's not about like the other hangups in like how the homeless service system works, which the the CLA, John Wickham, the presenter, made great pains to emphasize that much of the reason homeless services in Los Angeles County doesn't do as well as it should be is not because of obscure governance, which is absolutely an issue, but because of other hangups in other system in other parts that are outside the purview of it doesn't really matter who the like top authority is, mm. these issues are gonna keep cropping up. And actually I wanna I wanna play a little bit of tape, actually. It's a one minute clip that I think is really indicative about this whole thing and this whole discussion about like governance versus other problems within the homeless services system that like we could d- be directing attention to. The homelessness response system is a weak link system. You need everybody working together to figure out how to solve the problems and to make it more efficient. You know, we had the story from LASA the other day uh, that was presented to the Homeless Strategy Committee where during COVID, the Social Security Office, an independent federal agency, has been closed. In order to help, in order to get a social security card, you have to send your California ID, your driver's license, or your passport in the mail to the social security office, and then they will send it back to you along with a social security card. A person being placed, a homeless person being placed into housing needs a social security card. So it doesn't matter how fast LASA can work, they need social security to deliver, no matter how you structure your city services or your city and county services, you, need, you still need the federal government and you still need the state to align with you. So when we're talking about a weak link system, we're talking about identifying all of the players on the field and making sure that we're improving the weakest players across the board. Well, and Mr. Wickham, I don't follow sports, but based on your analogy, I would say get rid of the weak players. <laughs> So get rid of the weak players. That's Council President Nuri Martinez saying loop out the federal government. Saying get rid of the Social Security Administration. I mean, <laughs> the mo- I, 
Okay. Well, that that is um, concerning. I mean, it, it, especially if it's if this is the model we're we're proceeding based on what uh, the CLA is saying, we end up with this. And as as listeners might even expect already, what we're talking about is dividing basically creating hard boundaries between service provision within LA County, but doing nothing whatsoever to change service provision that relies on this extensive network of uh, other bureaucratic agencies outside of the city and county of Los Angeles. All we've basically done is like we're like dividing and conquering our own efforts to to meet the needs of homeless people. It's... um. And practically, it would give the city council more, uh, I guess, responsibility, actual tangible responsibility over managing this entire system or the mayor's office, whoever would actually be in charge of it. But it would mean more responsibility on the part of the city of L.A., which I don't actually think our current crop of politicians, or at least especially when I hear things like what I just heard, um, are, are I don't think that's the motivation. I think the motivation in many senses is just to like, yes, there there is a giant problem. Things need to be like it is the governance issue absolutely needs to be rectified, but making it, I think I view it more as a political talking point. And when it, when it gets, when like substantive discussion of like, okay, our system needs more help from like, you know, the federal, it doesn't matter what we do. We need the federal government to be on on board. And that's a hang up in our system when it comes to the quote unquote problem being quote unquote solved. But like when it gets dismissed like that and we're just going to, you know, as Buscaino said, divorce Lhasa, it's like, okay, well, that's not going to, now you're still going to have the main problems that you have right now if the city is in charge of it. And by the way, that for the LA City Council members means you're more in charge of this than you are right now and more accountable, which as much as they want homeless services to be accountable to themselves right now, it already is because Lhasa is still, I mean, it's more the mayor's office than Mm -hmm. the council, but like- Lhasa listens to, you know, when council member O'Farrell says we're going to close uh, Echo Park Lake, like Heidi Marston, the executive director of Lhasa, goes out to do it herself because like there's that's that's how it works. Like it's not as if Lhasa is not accountable in its current uh, structure to the city of L.A. Well, and then what happens too with this like um, private service provider trend, right, where mm-hmm. you're bringing in. Um, Urban Alchemy, for an example, of Echo Park that you just gave, bringing in these, these other groups to manage parts of um, quote unquote service provision, but they they aren't, they don't have access to They're the, not the software providers. you're talking about. Yeah. Right. So this is a very, it's it's creating almost like an illusion that there's more help. And of course, there are plenty of roles for service providers that aren't maybe navigation. They, you know, run showers or do other types of programs, but like without strengthening that, you know, that relationship. I don't, it's very strange to see this like trend picking up in different parts of the city where you're just contracting out for someone else to do it because you don't think Lhasa can do the job or whatever. It's the longstanding practice of wanting to appear to be doing something, but not actually doing something. Yeah. I mean, I I do feel like that is a, what you mentioned, Alyssa, I think that that is a, a, a clear thing that we might see happen if this, if this were to go through, it's something that the city of Los Angeles has done in, uh, for other departments before, just like wholesale replacing, uh, what would otherwise be city employees with, um, contracted labor mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and since we have a longstanding, as Matt said, practice of, of this being public 
part, uh, public private partnerships anyway, it seems like that is conceivably something that we could see with the test case of, of Mitchell Farrell's use of urban alchemy, uh, labor in, in CD 13, um, being, being present for, for other politicians to, uh, to follow the lead of, I, I, I think too, one of the things that, um, that I will continue to say, and I know I've said it repeatedly on this topic going back over a year now, when I hear about, you know, divorcing Lhasa, removing Los Angeles from this existing joint powers authority, the only thing to me that, that I can see, as you were saying, Matt, there is a pretty clear uh, expectation that you would have that politicians would be more, not less responsible for the outcomes, the, the tangible outcomes of whatever a city const, uh, construct of Lhasa would end up doing. However, I think that the most likely outcome is that politicians are going to use this as a, uh, a, a mechanism by which they can restart the clock before yeah. which they feel like they are validly accountable on issues of homelessness. And so they can say, oh, well, we just started the city of Los Angeles homelessness authority after 30 years of failed loss of decision making. So it's not fair for you to say that we are failing unhoused people. Really, it was the previous regime of that course. failed. Yeah. And it's going to take us time to figure out how to do this right, <laughs> even though they're disregarding the advice of their own legislative analyst right. who's saying this is not an approach that will tend towards good results. It will end up being five to 10 years before they accept that as valid critique. On the... On the uh, forming Los Angeles's own continuum of care, the the CLA said uh, for I believe the city of Atlanta did something similar. It was a years long. It was like three or four years for them to just get the administrative infrastructure in place, versus just revising the existing uh, basically contract for like the the JPA contract and and kind of going from there because you already have a system in place and it's more in tune. It's already better connected with the county. Anyway, this is, this is Brexit, basically. Yeah, homeless, homeless, lost exit. 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 I don't know. <laughs> exit. Um. Anyway, more to come on that. I guess uh, I was gonna hope to throw it to Scott for measure. There was some Measure J news this week, and I and I'm curious to hear. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's the last last thing here. We 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 do want to talk about Measure J. There was um, there was really. Uh, big news this week out of an ongoing lawsuit filed by uh, an association of unions, including the the union that represents deputy sheriffs for Los Angeles County um, against the county of Los Angeles, which is due to be implementing Measure J in its upcoming budget year. And Measure J, of course, that was the November 2020 ballot measure. Uh, actually written and sponsored by the board of supervisors themselves with Catherine Barger as the, the, the sole dissenting voice uh, on that body. And it would, if actually enacted, make it so that there were, was a uh, concrete and like a, a concrete ceiling basically on, on the amount of budget monies that could go towards public safety and there would be a floor on what could go towards um, so-called social, social justice 
budget priorities, things like returning money towards uh, communities that have been impacted by the uh, the years and decades long war on crime and drugs, etc. These are um, together part of the what was seen as the set of electoral victories in Los Angeles for progressives last year. Uh, really, a, a tremendous. Uh, a tremendous slate of victories, including uh, the election of city councilwoman Nithya Raman, the election of Los Angeles County uh, DA George Gascon and Supervisor Holly Mitchell. Uh, Measure J was seen as a crowning moment for the, the protests that had rocked Los Angeles throughout the course of 2020, along with other cities nationally. However, now in this court case, the uh, the the judge that was was hearing the case in superior court has found the measure to be wholly unconstitutional uh, under the states under California's state constitution. This ruling provided that it stands, and it seems at least as though it will be enforced initially, uh, would prevent any implementation of Measure J, and so we would not see the the requirement of of the, the the formulaic budgeting that it would have prescribed or the the um, the limitations on spending on public safety agencies including uh, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department they just will not be there now this is a very very potentially uh, monumental decision by the superior court judge. You feel you get the feeling that it will almost certainly be appealed, if so, to the uh, the the state court of appeals and then to the state supreme court potentially following that. But basically, what is being found here is that the board of supervisors solely and exclusively has the authority to uh, the authority and the responsibility to write and pass budgets for county government and that there is not a, a an ability by one set of supervisors so there's not an ability by for example the four members of the board of supervisors that wrote and passed this last year and then uh, moved it on to a vote by the, the voters in november have the ability to set restrictions on a on an issue like public safety at the when it comes to budgeting for all time so yeah go ahead like how is this different from like measure m or something which seems like i get that's a sales question right how is this different from all the other points measure m is it from what i understand you're generating a new revenue so it's different than determining what the existing budget can be used for is that or Right. I mean, so there there are a couple of points here. One is that Measure J is, as you mentioned, uh, setting requirements on pre-existing budget revenues. It is uh, telling the board what they can and cannot do with the uh, so-called unrestricted locally generated revenues, things that are not already earmarked for other things or coming in as revenue to special funds. Uh, things that are just generally raised for uh, the uh, discretionary expenditure by the board of supervisors. That is one point. However, you can look at uh, up and down the state of California, 
there are lots of formulaic spending measures, um, including at the state level, we have propositions that require a certain amount of tax revenue to be spent on uh, education, for example. Prop 98. Right. So the distinction that's made here by, by the judge is that whereas for Prop 98, that's, um, that is uh, an initiative or that was an initiative affecting state ballots. This is specific to the county government. Even if it were for a charter city such as the city of Los Angeles, there is potentially uh, some under this argument, there's some chance that the same measure as written could be found constitutional on these grounds because it is specifically for the county budget and the county general fund. Uh, the the judge argues that it falls under, and and also the the petitioners, the unions themselves, argue that it falls under the authority of the county budget act, which is a state law mm. that says as counties, counties are um, unique among among the administrative divisions of the state, whereas cities are in in the state of California somewhat unique. Uh, if, if they are charter cities, they're somewhat unique and have some home rule where they can make uh, make their own provisions that differ from those of the uh, state constitution to an extent. In contrast to that, for counties, they, those are administrative units of the state. They are wholly creatures of the state created by um, and, and just operating as subdivisions of the state of California. So the County Budget Act says for all counties in the state of California, the board has the authority and duty to create uh, to create budgets as the state tells them to, basically, and um, and so that is different from at the state level. There, there is, I suppose, not a corresponding ar- argument there around the formula funding for education, and again, at the city level, I think that there is at least a chance that that would stand up in court as well. The other question about Measure M, which was a uh, proposition passed by voters in order to levy new tax for Metro, uh, it's actually interesting because Metro is not a part of county government. It looks as though it is, but it, it actually is a state chartered agency that is not funded out of the county's general fund. Metro has its own budgeting process. Um, in its own governance, as as we just talked about in the last segment, or yeah, in the last segment, which means that it gets uh, that it, it it is governed by a coalition of partners from among the eighty eight cities, from the city of Los Angeles, and also from the county. So it is a wholly distinct, I guess, issue that is not necessarily covered by this same county budget act. There's there's um, it's it's a very Interesting. And the more that I got into it, I think my initial reaction upon reading it was it seems hard to believe that this would stand up in court given that ballot box budgeting has been part of the state of California for so long. Um, but having read more into it, I, I think that there's good reason to be concerned that even upon appeal, this result could stand up. And, um, and if so, what does that mean? You know, like, you know, we're, we're there was just an article in in the New York Times this past week about uh, as as we've been following here the the revolt by assistant DAs towards uh, George Gascon. Uh, you kind of look at all of the 
electoral victories in Los Angeles over the course of the past year. And it, it seems like they're directly imperiled either, you know, either uh, through independent action or, or by others. And it, it, it is worrisome to say the least, but I, I guess, so what, what happens if, if measure J is wholly unconstitutional, if it never gets implemented what impact does that have on on LA? Well, the the first thing is, uh, do the do do the supervisors know and understand like what the process like? How did this happen? I guess is my first question. Like, how did this go past um, their own analysis of uh, the legality of this? And did they not maybe question whether or not they would? Uh, have the sheriff's department or their representatives come after them for for this? It seems very uh, pointed uh, attack in that in that way. Um, but also, could could they just do what they wanted to and you know pass the budget that they want to pass um, and just say you know we don't need Measure J. We've heard from the people and we're just going to approach this agenda in this way. Right. So, so the argument made by the, the judge goes like this. In June 2020, the Board of Supervisors said that it wanted this thing to happen with respect to the budget. However, subsequent boards might totally disagree. And, and Holly Mitchell, of course, wasn't part of that she number. Wrote, that's, that's a very good yeah, example. So she was not. So was it not is a, a different board than it was at the time. What the, what the county has said is exactly what you said. We can do this anyway, because, you know, we, we can, we've, we've heard what the people have to say and we'll budget as though Measure J were in force. However, I mean, it's not really as cut and dry as that. We had Isaac Bryan on before he was right. uh, elected That's to right. uh, to the assembly, and he was already saying, even under the assumption that Measure J would be enacted as as the voters uh, as the voters wanted, that they did not feel as though that ten percent of of funds was being calculated correctly. So, like, if the board is going through with what they said that they were going to do whether or not it is true to the promise of Measure J is an open question. But if they're doing it at their discretion and not according to the letter of Measure J, um, there's there's no chance for accountability there, right? Mm. We've totally eliminated the accountability right. to Measure J. Your other question is the exact same one that I keep coming back to, <laughs> which is what is happening with the Los Angeles Board of Supervisors? They wrote Measure J, uh, they wrote, and, and the other major progressive victory of this Board of Supervisors several years ago was was Prop H. And, yep. and you kind of have this now repeated round of failures by the board to, I mean, Prop H, I, I mean, it, it's like, whether or not it is a, a, a failure as such, I, I think that the the perception is certainly that the the county politicians have not done a good job of ensuring that that these very important policy measures would be enacted in such a way that people would see the results of them. I think rather the narrative has very much so become one of these progressive, um, the, these progressive items foundering basically. I mean, it kind of, as I've, I've, I've I haven't followed the, the J 
I guess, allocations, decision-making process that closely, but I have watched a few of the meetings, so the ATI meetings, and they remind me very much of the Measure H, how are we going to spend Measure H this year meetings, which mm-hmm. are, it's, I mean, these are these are measures that were crafted to raise revenue for the county of Los Angeles or allocate other revenue for a specific number of, I guess, quote unquote, stakeholders who can actually receive those grants from the state, from the county. Like as I was looking at, as like a lot of Measure J stuff can also, like Measure J funds in theory can be spent for the same things that Measure H funds. There's provision of like mental health, behavioral health, um, like service provision is in there, but also like the construction of affordable housing and, and supportive housing. And I almost interpreted, like when I went through and read it, I was like, this is almost like a a safety valve for if Measure H doesn't get renewed several years from now that we can continue providing $200 Mm. million worth of funding for Mm -hmm. whoever is receiving that money for Measure H stuff. Right now, we can just transition it over later on. Um, But I mean, that's a to the points emphasized here, it's not great if it just doesn't, if they evaporate. And then I don't really like if, if, I don't know. The California Supreme Court says actually no. The counties can't do this. But yeah. yeah, and and this is and this is a very weird case where the county. I mean, just like with Prop H, the the county wrote Measure J yeah. themselves. The Board of Supervisors wrote this measure. The people who you should expect to be competent in in matters of writing policy that stands up in court. This is not something like. I mean, famously. 40 years ago, Prop yeah, Prop 13 was yeah. written by Howard Jarvis on a fucking bender. I don't know what the fuck he was doing. And <laughs> and when it, and when it when it passed, oh, yeah, it, it had to be enacted over 48 hours by by state governments. It made a lot of things um, that were frankly just impossible from a policy standpoint, and had to be addressed in multiple propositions following that. This is not a case where like some amateur some novice was writing these this is this was the county writing a measure for itself and i think people i mean one of the critiques at the time would would have been why why does the county need to do this at all the county has the authority to cut the the sheriff's budget if they so choose Um, and they have the authority to reallocate that money to projects that they think are important if they so choose but now, I mean, in this situation, we have uh, a clear majority of Los Angeles County voters saying that that's what they want to happen. That seems to me like if all of if all the board of supervisors wanted was to ensure that they were not going out on a ledge, politically speaking, seemingly they have done that. But by virtue of getting this measure passed, they have demonstrated that there is clear popular support for what was included in Measure J. Um, and they should feel like they can go bold with that. And there's such a good illustration of this happening right now over the next couple of weeks um, on the Venice Boardwalk, where you see the Sheriff's Department with their homeless outreach services team, the host team. I was out there this week. It was like they had stormed the beaches and brought their little dune buggies to drive up and down the boardwalk to just harass people. They said they were doing outreach. But there's a letter from this coalition from Justice LA and Check the Sheriff and Services Not Sweeps, all big Measure J proponents um, who are asking for the host uh, team to be defunded, you know, asking the Board of Supervisors to defund 
this part of the sheriff's department budget, which is they they say is just is not in alignment with these values. So this is a perfect example of like, you know, can can they can the the board of supervisors will they step up and do that? Will they take that budget away from the sheriff's department and put it into say? actual service provision for the Venice boardwalk area. Send it to Lhasa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think that the, the biggest question mark now, I mean, the, uh, so for, for our listeners, then the next thing that happens, the, the case is continuing. This was a preliminary ruling by, by the judge. So it's not final as of yet. However, it does seem very likely that it will stand. It doesn't, uh, the, the judge has not allowed for the introduction of new uh, legal defenses or or critiques by either of the parties. So um, it's hard to imagine such a sweeping finding by her could be overturned somehow between now and the ruling becoming finalized. Uh, once that does happen, assuming that the, the, that the county chooses to pursue an appeal, uh, which you would expect they would, that would then go, as I mentioned, to to the Court of Appeals and we'll be following this decision very carefully to see what, what happens there. The The main thing that I can see as far as the near future for LA political culture is the amount of damage that this decision would do to the the political structure of the Board of Supervisors. Like the, the trust there, I don't know how you could possibly repair that after after h and j it's like you have you know it's like beware greeks bearing gifts or whatever right like it's it's like how do you how do you trust that this is actually an ally coming to you in good faith that you can work with if you are a progressive movement in los angeles the board of supervisors whether through um i mean by all by all appearances just seemingly through sheer incompetence has shown that it cannot be a reliable political partner for for these movements, despite w- apparently wanting to be. Yeah. So plenty of space for, I guess, other. I mean, hey, there's the, no shortage of ways to put stuff on the ballot, and maybe you could read it a little bit more closely than Measure J two County. <laughs> right. I think that's about it. Right. Yep. Thanks for listening. That was the 179th episode of this fine LA podcast. <laughs> Thank you, as always, to our Sepulveda Pass holders. You keep us independent. If you want to, you know, contribute $5 a month, you could join the Sepulveda Pass on Patreon. You click support us on the LAPod.com. There's extra shows in the Patreon app for those of you who become uh, sustaining subscribers. And uh, thanks to Brian Holmes, our producer. I'm Matt Tinoco with Scott Frazier, Alyssa Walker, and we'll be back with another episode next Monday. Thank you.